This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Friday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. This is a show dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions or life questions or any way that we might possibly help. We'll do the best that we can. We need only to have you call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email to questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're out driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, There's one banner, call now, you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, our main number is 340-9585. You know by now I love Fridays, I like Fridays because it's when we get busy, there's a lot going on. I'll have a Bible study tonight in Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to talk about Melchizedek. Uh, On Saturday, we have Saturday morning prayer here uh, at church. And then uh, Sunday, of course, it's Communion Sunday, the first Sunday of the month. And I'm always excited about that. But let me tell you about something that just happened here at Calvary Chapel today. I, I, I really didn't realize we we're getting this close to the end of the school year. Uh, but today was the first end of school year event. It was our eighth annual talent show. And I was so blessed. This is one of those times when I just kind of sit back and I've watched these kids grow up and some that were so small. We had a senior, and there were a bunch of seniors that participated in the talent show. But we had one senior that I have known his entire life. Uh, His family has been around uh, our church forever. Um, He's he's, uh, one of the smartest kids in our school. Always has been. But he's always been shy and it never occurred to me that he would ever get up on stage and do something. And today he sang a song. And I, I senior year, I was just absolutely blown away by it. That's just the kind of neat thing that the Lord does in these kids' lives. We had kids from kindergarten all the way up to seniors in high school and really, really had a good time. So um, people say, why do you do what you do? Well, those are the reasons that I do Uh, what I do. I'm just so, so blessed. Okay, let's get to, hope you have a great weekend in church. Let me get to questions while we're uh, waiting for your phone calls. The first one is from an anonymous mother. 
She says, I know I shouldn't, but I keep bailing my son out of trouble. I give him money. I've even hired a lawyer for him. I can't stand the thought of him getting into really bad trouble, so I help him. Is God okay with me helping him? Uh, Anonymous mother, here's the thing that you've got to understand. You're not really helping him. I understand the, the, the immediate satisfaction of bailing him out of trouble. But you keep doing it, and he keeps getting in more and more trouble. So what you need to do is draw a line. Remember, this is Jesus' house. You're, you're a servant of Jesus Christ. And while you can't make your son believe in Jesus or follow Jesus, you can stand with Jesus for your son. And that means you've got to tell him no. What that also means is you've got to get over feeling guilty or letting him push your buttons that make you feel guilty. When you give him money, um, obviously there's been some legal problems, so you've even hired a lawyer for him. When you do that, you're not helping him. I understand the idea, well, this is my son. And we've had it over the years both ways, sons and daughters. Well, where else are they going to go? Or if they, if I don't help them, nobody is going to help them. Well, see, one of the things as Christian parents that we want to do is point our kids to Jesus. And sometimes circumstances, sometimes circumstances are the thing that forces them to look to Jesus. So uh, for whatever it's worth, I beg you, don't give him money. Don't hire lawyers for him. If he gets in trouble... He's got to learn that sin has consequences. And if mom keeps bailing him out, he never learns that he can trust only in God. So will he get into bad trouble? The answer is probably yes. But remember, if he gets in bad trouble, and he's going to get in bad trouble anyway, he's already been in trouble, at some point you're not going to be able to help him. Whenever he gets in that bad trouble, we want him to be able to see Jesus in the middle of that trouble. So what you're doing is getting in the way of God and getting in the work that God wants to do in him. And in fact, and I know this sounds harsh, I don't mean it that way, but I really want to make this point. You're trying to be God in this boy's life by rescuing him. You know, mom's always the go-to person. Jesus and only Jesus can be the go-to person. So please, please, please stop. You're not helping. You're enabling. And when you do that, things aren't going to get better ever. They're going to get worse. So I hope that answers your question. Here's another anonymous question. Direct and to the point. Pastor Ron, what's an unmarried man or woman supposed to do about relieving sexual tension? You know, one of the fruits of the Spirit Anonymous is self-control. So here's what you do. As an unmarried man or an unmarried woman, you ask God for the gift of celibacy. Lord, I want my body to honor you. I want to stay in that place where I can be blessed. I want to stay in that place where my fellowship is rich with you. And so I ask you for the gift of celibacy. Now, it's not a lifetime gift. You don't have to worry about that. But while you're single, you need that gift. That way you can focus on serving the Lord. That way you can focus on finding and then being in and remaining in His perfect will for your life. But I think sometimes the world that we live in makes it seem, and I would also attribute this anonymous to the access, the easy access of pornography. 
Um, but, but we've become a culture that treats our sexuality like a god. I deserve to be sexually satisfied. I deserve to be happy. Whatever it is. And the only godly response to your question is, okay, Jesus, I'm going to be with you. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. If you're out of control, and these kind of questions or thoughts consume you, remember two things. First, they're from the devil. Secondly, Jesus is the answer. And what you've got to do is you've got to say, Lord, your grace is sufficient. And then as Christians, we have to believe it. We really have to believe it. Now, most of us say, oh, I know that. We believe it. But the truth is, when it comes especially to temptation, and more especially when it comes to sexual temptation, we prove by the choices we make over and over and over that we don't believe it at all. I talk all the time on this program, Anonymous, about hating sin. you got to hate that sin before you fall to it. And so what you do is you say, Jesus, I believe that you're going to be enough for me. I believe that your grace is sufficient, the grace for living. I believe that I can have peace as an unmarried man or woman. And when you really believe it, then you'll no longer have this temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is something that you ought to memorize. Uh, it says, um, no sin has seized you, or no temptation, rather, has seized you, except that which is common to man. In other words, everybody has gone through the same kind of temptations you're going through. And then the next words are critical. And God is faithful. Then say you're faithful or I'm faithful, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can stand under the temptation, meaning you can overcome it. And all we have to do is really believe that. And if we'll believe it, it will change our lives. I can promise you that. So rather than focusing on what you're supposed to do about your unresolved sexual temptation, focus instead on Jesus. And you'll find victory over that kind of temptation. Richard wants to know, how do we judge between the importance of tradition versus the Bible? Um, Richard, it ought to be an easy judgment to make. Um, tradition, uh, from the very beginning of the church, nearly 2,000 years ago, tradition uh, has always been inconsistent. Tradition sometimes uh, is uh, at odds with the Word of God. Tradition is what men do or what seems right to men. And certainly our, our understanding is flawed. And so a lot of times we, we follow traditions blindly, traditions that contradict what the Word of God says. So just on that basis alone, there is no judgment needed because it is the Word, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible that makes clear what we should trust. It's a Bible that reveals to us Jesus Christ and the traditions of man simply don't. Now I get questions about uh, church traditions, Catholic traditions, uh, family traditions. Remember, we as Christians cannot fall 
into the trap of following a tradition that is in opposition to what the Word of God says. Um, praying to saints, it's a tradition of men. The Word of God says there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. That's just one. I could, I could give you dozens of them, but that's just one. So it's the Bible, sola scriptura. The Bible is the final and authoritative word from God about all the things that we experience in this world, how to live, how to fight, um, spiritually speaking. Um, it's just the word. And Richard, the problem is when we put tradition on the same level uh, as the Word, what we really have done is elevated that tradition over the Word of God because, after all, the Word doesn't change and man's traditions keep changing. We ought to be able to look at the course of church history and see all of the traps that tradition led men into, those traditions still being observed today. Let me just give you one to think about, Richard. Jesus said, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Um, the Nicolaitans, the, the combination of two Latin words, nico, meaning above, and laity, uh, above the people. And so the tradition came along that we would, we would elevate in the church certain men, we'd call them saints, or we'd call them father. Jesus said, I hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. Why would he hate the practice of having a father or a priest or somebody standing between you and God? Because Jesus died. That we would have access and to, to fall into the trap of that tradition is to misunderstand the reason Jesus came. It's to diminish the work that he did. So that's a tradition. There's another one. Infant baptisms is a tradition of, of man. Not just Catholics, but other denominations. All you have to do is look at your Bible and understand that baptism is a willful act. It has to be a choice made of our own free will. It's our public proclamation of our faith in Jesus Christ. An infant can't make that proclamation. And yet we have these rituals that we think is going to take care of our little sin and going to ensure that our child gets into heaven. That's why you see Samuel being dedicated as an infant, not baptized. As adults, we have to make our own choices. And those are just two of them, uh, Richard. But very, very important that we don't fall into the trap of following along with traditions passed from generation to generation to generation. Uh, we have his word made more sure, more certain. And all we have to do is rely on, hold on to the word. 340-9585. I've noticed a trend on Fridays. The phones are quiet. We'd love your calls. Here's a question from Kenneth. He says, what is your opinion of bivocational pastors? I personally think it's good so the church doesn't have to pay for a pastor. You know, Kenneth, as a pastor, that's a little bit offensive. You know, is it something you, you don't think pastors deserve? You don't think we work hard? Or you don't think we deserve to get paid? Now, I agree that we shouldn't get paid tons of money. And unfortunately, there are some 
churches and pastors that pay enormous sums of money. That shouldn't be. However, even Paul said, don't muzzle the ox. Why? Because he needs the strength to eat, of eating, to, to, to do the work that he's required to do. God's not talking about ox when he's talking about the, 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 the men who direct the affairs of the church that were double honor. That doesn't mean double the amount of money other people get. And unfortunately, there have been some that have taken it to that extreme. But what it means is, yeah, pay them. As a church, you should love paying your pastor. Um, a bivocational pastor is fine. Um, somebody who works outside the home or outside the church, but also works in the church. But some of the problems with that are simple and obvious to point out. One is, how much time does a, a man who works 40 or more hours a week at a, at a secular job, how much time does he have to give the study in the Word? And normally when I see people who say, no, I think we shouldn't pay pastors, they should serve for free, I, I don't think that they understand or value at all the work that the pastor has to do. I don't think they understand that as a pastor we're on duty, always. My phone is never shut off because then you never know when things are going to happen. I also think, Kenneth, and this is my opinion, I think the church, especially when a church is beginning, I think a church needs a pastor more than they need a building or anything else. We can meet in storefronts. We can meet in, uh, we met in a daycare center, in, a, in an apartment complex, in the rec center of the apartment complex. Uh, I think a church, the people who begin coming and begin being changed by the word of God, I think those people need a pastor. We have planted, I think we, we're planning our 31st and 32nd churches this year um, out of churches that have been sent out of Calvary Chapel. And I tell the guys that we send out that the people that call you pastor need you to be available to them. And you can't do that if you've got a 40-hour or more per week job. So I tell them, always start looking for the very first possible opportunity that you can cut ties with the secular world and let the church support you. Again, it doesn't have to be a lot of money. It shouldn't be any more than the medium range of the church that you're serving, the medium income. But if you're working and they're unavailable to the people, how are they going to know that you care? How are they going to know that you love them? So, Kenneth, personally, I think you're way off base. Um, I get paid a lot. Um, Paul and I, we don't need a lot. But at the same time, um, we have to eat. Got to pay rent or mortgage. Got to pay for gas and the other things like everybody else. And I think uh, the Bible's pretty clear. The New Testament is pretty clear. Here's a question from Lauren. Uh, Lauren says, I think I'm saved, but not exactly, but not sure exactly what I needed to be saved from. I'm a new believer, so I'd appreciate it if you can explain. Well, Lauren, um, God bless you for, for being honest and open enough to ask this question um, what we're saved from 
is the consequences from our sins. And you've heard that Jesus died for your sins. You asked Jesus into your heart. That's how we become a new believer. But what we have to understand is that our life apart from Christ, Paul writes that we were enemies of God before we got saved. I love the old King James word, enmity. There was enmity between me and God before I got saved. And when I gave my heart to Jesus, I knew what I needed to be saved from. I was a sinner, and I was condemned to eternity in hell. But Jesus waited for me. And so he rescued me, not only from my sins, but from the penalty of my sins. He took my sins upon himself, He made me perfect, positionally, not literally. And then he promised me heaven instead of hell. So I got saved from me. I got saved from sin. And it's really and truly important that you understand that. One of the things that I'm sure you understand as a brand new believer is that you were guilty of violating God's word, God's law. Because it doesn't sound like you had a background in the Bible at all. Neither did I, by the way, when I got saved. Absolutely no background at all. Um, When I got saved, Lauren, there was like a million pounds of pressure that was lifted off of me. It's like I was going through life carrying this huge, huge weight. There was no hope not for the future here in this world, nor in eternity. Uh, I had an awareness of God's existence, of course. But I really didn't understand. And you know, as humans, we, we try to be good or do good or even to do better. And when we try to do better, we still can't be perfect and perfection is the standard of heaven. That's why Jesus gave you his perfection. Second Corinthians 5.21 is just a wonderful, wonderful promise. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so here's what he did. He took away your past. He took away all the sins that stood against you and would have condemned you for eternity. But more than just rescuing you, he then delivered you into his family, his kingdom here on earth. He guaranteed you a place in heaven for eternity. And because he did that, Lauren, we don't have to worry ever again about where we're going to spend forever. So I hope that makes sense to you. You were saved from sin and you were saved from you as I was some 28 years ago. So, Lauren, God bless you. You're a new believer. Be sure you're in a solid Bible-teaching church. If you don't have a Bible, get one. If you can't buy one, come here and I'll give you one. Um, But dig in and find out just what a wonderful gift this salvation really is. You know, um, we're coming pretty close to the end of this half of the program. Uh, I was talking earlier about the talent show and some of these kids that that um, I've, I've known their entire lives. 
Um, I've seen how God has changed their families. I've seen how God has rescued them from the path they were on and put them on a path into heaven. I've seen their lives be transformed. Lord, the only way we can do that is, is to have Jesus rescue us. I always think of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 when he says, um, what I want to do, I can't do, and what I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And then he cries out, oh, wretched man that I am, who can rescue me from this body of death? And then he answers in the 25th verse of Romans 7, he answers his own question. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's the one who delivered me. Think of Jesus as a superhero, and you're under attack. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus on his white horse, and he scoops you up and rides off into heaven with you. That's what Jesus did. For you, Lauren, it's what he did for me. I'm really, really grateful. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We have 30 minutes left in the week. Um, uh, so we'd love your calls. You're listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. Um, remember, for a lot of you, this is going to be Communion Sunday. Really dig in. Check your heart with the God, Paul, or with the Lord. Paul says, examine yourselves daily to see if you're in the faith. And then join me in a figurative toast to the work that God has done in you and through you this week at church. We'll be back in two minutes. See you on the other side. to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, 340-9585 for our final half hour of the week. Here is a question that just came into our email inbox from Kathy. She says, Hi, Pastor Ron. Do you know of Heidi Baker and her school of ministry? Is her teaching Bible based? Her ministry in Africa seems to do so much good for the children. Kathy, I'm only vaguely familiar with with Heidi Baker. Um, she is. I want to choose my words carefully here. Um, she sometimes delivers, I think, necessary, very hard words to the church. Um. She also does some really strange things. Uh, I can't judge her ministry. Uh, I don't know enough doctrinally to know whether or not she is, um, you know, over the top charismatic or uh, whether there's any prosperity message in there. So often when when uh, Americans go to Africa uh, and other third world countries, they take a prosperity gospel message. I don't believe that's what she does. Uh, there is reports of miracles being done uh, in her ministry. Um, um, I've often said in this program that when you go to third world countries, especially places where where it's dangerous to be a Christian, where the name of Jesus isn't well known, that God still does miracles, just like he did in the book of Acts. Uh, and so I commend her for 
um, what she does. Uh, there's no evidence that she has been compromised by sin. Certainly she's not in it to get rich. Uh, nobody goes to Africa to get rich. Uh, so, so, Kathy, I would give her the benefit of the doubt in the absence of knowing doctrine and what she teaches. I simply don't have time to go listen to some of the messages that she she would, would share. Um, but, um, you know, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt, if at all possible. And um, it does seem that she's doing uh, some good, um, not just for the children, but for um, the people, their, their parents as well. Uh, in Africa, so um, maybe I'll get a little bit more in depth and be able to answer a little bit better next week. But uh, for now, I would just say uh, give her the benefit of the doubt. Uh, if she has said things that are heretical, I don't know about them. So I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very much for asking the question, Kathy. Um, From our email inbox from Nacho, Pastor Ron, regarding the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, will the events Jesus mentions happen specifically in the end times, or could we experience them them sooner? Are the ten days mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10, a literal ten days? Um, And then, um, I mean, those are the two questions. Okay, I thought there was more, but he's got the... um, passages here. Um, the first question, Nacho, the uh, the seven churches, and one of the things that we have to remember, and I think this gets forgotten a lot in exegeting uh, chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, um, the entire book of Revelation, according to chapter 1, as it's given in the outline, sort of in the setup for the whole book, the entire book is a prophecy. So while Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were written to real historical churches in those seven locations in Asia Minor, now there were far more influential churches, far more bigger churches, uh, but, but the idea here is that Jesus had a reason for picking those seven churches. And because the whole book is a prophecy, while they're literal and spoke to those people, at the very time that they receive those letters, those letters also have prophetic value for churches of all time in every phase of church history. From the very beginning to, to the time that we live in, there had been churches um, that are represented by those seven letters. The things that were going on in those seven churches are things that are still going on in our churches today. So, uh, it's not the events happening specifically in the end times. Um, we are experiencing those things. I'll give you an example. Uh, Laodicea is a lukewarm church. Well, we know there are lukewarm churches all over the map. So, um, yes, it was true of Laodicea, but it's also true of churches today. Let me go one step further with the prophetic value of this, Nacho. It's also true that every one of those letters describes the place where individual Christians are in their walk with the Lord right now. So there's there's the historical application, there's the prophetic application as it relates to churches, but there's also the prophetic application as it relates to individual Christians. That's why those letters are so valuable to us. So the judgments that are proclaimed on those churches are judgments that happened 
in time and space. They're also symbolic of the things that happen to us if we share those traits. Uh, the next question are the 10 days mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10, a literal 10 days. Let me read that, and then I'll give you the answer. Uh, he says, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer perse- persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Um, the 10 days, it's thought not it's not 10 literal days, but it was a, 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 a way of, of suggesting there was 10 separate persecutions. Now, this is important in this church as, as, as uh, Jesus is addressing them. Historically, we can go back and find that they were subject to 10 different phases of persecution. Jesus was simply trying to prepare them. And he was telling, you may die for your faith, but it will be worth it. So not 10 days, but it was 10 periods of persecution that's going to be um, spoken about there. And then the other question I just saw is Revelation 2.28, a promise of Jesus dwelling with us in heaven forever. Um, I will also give that one the morning star. Uh, It is the morning star, of course, is a reference to that star in the eastern sky that for me personally has always been so important as a symbol of Jesus. But uh, Jesus simply says, uh, everything in heaven is going to be yours. All you have to do is hang in there. So, yeah, it is a picture of Jesus uh, being with us, or even better, us being with him forever. Um, Here's a question from Emily and Jeff that just came in. And, guys, I'm going to need you to clarify this. It says, you just told the caller she violated the law. What do you mean by the law? And I'm not sure what you mean, um, Emily or Jeff. Um, um, I, I don't remember telling anybody. I hadn't had a call yet, so it was a question. Um, um, the, I, maybe you're talking about the, the new believer who said, what was she rescued from? Um, when we violate the law, then there are going to be eternal consequences and we need to be rescued. So by the law, if that's what you're referring to, I mean the law of Moses. Now, we're not under the law, but if we don't believe in Jesus Christ, if we don't accept the gift that came through Jesus Christ, then we're going to be judged by the law. And so, I hope this is what I said. I hope what I said was, and using me as an example, that I was God's enemy. I was in violation of his laws. I willfully rebelled against God, and there's a consequence to pay for that. So um, when I say that, that somebody violated the law, um, the only answer for that violation law is faith in Jesus Christ, which becomes a new law unto itself in the sense that we're freed then from the law, which never produced what God wanted it to produce. You know, if the law could produce righteousness, then there would have been no need for Jesus' sacrifice. But the whole point of the law is to point out our sin and thus clearly indicate that we need to be saved. And the idea of salvation uh, is offensive to a lot of people, frankly, uh, Emily and Jeff. And, and uh, no, I'm, I'm a good person. I try to do good. You can't be good enough nor do enough good. All sin 
the first willful conscious sin you ever made separated you forever from God. And only Jesus has the answer for that. So I, I hope that's what you're referring to. Thank you very much for asking for clarification. Let's go to line one, San Antonio now, and talk with Joe. Joe, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. I just have a question on, as far as when, when you're witnessing or talking to somebody about the Lord, what's a good scripture to use to, what, what, what scriptures do you use or something I can read on or help me witness to somebody? Okay, thank you, Joe. I can do that. You know, um, when I'm talking to an unbeliever, Joe, um, I'm, I'm usually not going to begin with scripture. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to them about what's missing in their in their lives. I'm going to ask them typically how things are going. Now, and, and, and Joe, we're, we're, people are different, but for me, um, and, and I think God will do this for you because your heart is to share. I think as you're talking to somebody um, and, and sort of praying under your breath, asking God to give you some insight I think the Holy Spirit will get, use the gifts, the gifts of wisdom or the gift of knowledge. And he'll give you insight into people and how to talk with them. And I like to meet them where they are. I'll look for T-shirts they're wearing. I'll look for bumper stickers on their cars. Um, um, just just anything that will give me an opening to say, hey, I saw that sticker. What does that T-shirt mean? Or something like that. And and God is so faithful, he'll always give me an, uh, an opening, and then we'll be able to share. And that doesn't mean everybody receives Christ, of course, but what it means is that it gives me something to meet them with, where then when I talk to them about their sin, when I talk to them about, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3, or there is none righteous, not even one. Again, the, the first five chapters of Romans are so rich in terms of dealing with people and their obvious sin um, that, that I want to do that. And, and of course, um, John 3.16, um, when, when they're, they're recognizing that there is a problem, that yes, I've sinned, um, and, and if what you tell me is true, sinners aren't going to go to heaven apart from Jesus Christ, then, then I can tell him. Yeah, but see, that's the good news, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he loved you. I like to tell people about the, the Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the pearl of great price. Um, you know, one of the things, Joe, in the world that we live in, people, have, they, they just don't feel there's any value. Um, I mean, if you listen to the song lyrics that people sing, if you look into people's eyes and you see the pain and you see the sadness, People are looking for hope. And I want to tell people that things can get better and they can get better in an instant. And usually when I tell them that, they're going to ask the question, well, well, how do you know? You don't know what's going on in my life. And I can tell them, well, I know what was going on in my life 28 years ago when I gave my heart to Jesus. And as I describe, I found, Joe, there's great power in personal testimony. And so without talking their ear off, I want to let them know that I was lost, that I was without hope, that my life was filled with pain, and I thought my life was over, and then Jesus changed everything in an instant. And the Holy Spirit will use those things. You know, if you go through the book of Acts, 
Um, Paul shares his personal testimony three times. Uh, and Paul really only deals with Scripture when he's talking to Jews and he's trying to appeal to them on the basis of their own Scriptures. But when he's talking to Gentiles, he's just sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. And so as long as I've got an audience, I'm going to tell them about how good God is. I'm going to let them know that he can provide the emptiness or the, the solution for the emptiness that's in your heart. And um, you'll be able to tell instantly if they get it, Joe. So rather than leading off with Scripture, just share Jesus and share what Jesus has done in your heart. We've got a, a fairly new guy in our church named A.J., um, he and his wife, Ariana, they weren't married when they came here. But A.J. got radically saved. I mean, just radically saved. You you look at this guy's eyes, and it's a completely different human being than the, than the A.J. That, that first stumbled into our church. His life a mess. And um, it's just easy to see when somebody gets it, and he gets it. So just share what God has done for you. Share the fact that God loves them. And then let the Holy Spirit do the work. So, Joe, I hope that makes sense. I, you know, I, I think sometimes we're hoping for a magic bullet scripture that'll do it. And there just isn't going to be one. But uh, for the most part, just share people about Jesus. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Dennis. He says, "What is soteriology, and how can I learn more about it?" Dennis, I I, I giggled a little bit because that's just one word I have a hard time saying. Uh, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Um, I, let me make that plural: doctrines of salvation. So when you're studying the doctrines of salvation, how you get saved, what it takes to be saved. Uh, what's the process of salvation? Uh, is it necessary to be baptized to get saved? Anything like that? Well, that's what soteriology is. And there are lots and lots of opinions. But um, if you look at your Bible, your New Testament, you're going to find that the doctrine of salvation uh, is simply this. Believe in Jesus. Not know about him, but really know him. And you'll be saved. Ask Jesus into your heart, and you'll be saved. So that's what soteriology is. There is a ton of information out there, um, Dennis, about um, the doctrines of salvation. Um, I would suggest um, my favorite of all time is F.F. F. Bruce. Um, Google him and soteriology. Um, uh, another one of my favorites is a guy named Ray Stedman. Uh, who was the pastor of the Peninsula Bible Church uh, in Northern California for many, many years before he went home to be with the Lord. Um, but, but there's a lot of really good written materials out there about the doctrines of salvation. That's what soteriology is. Here is a question from Lawrence. Uh, it's my day for people bagging on pastors. Lawrence says, I find pastors to be very negative how can they say we all deserve hell instead of deserving heaven? You know, uh, Lawrence, uh, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. Uh, I had a, a woman call this program one time. Um, she actually called several times, but she finally got, she goes, 
uh, why are you so negative? Shouldn't we focus on the good about people? And I said, yeah, if there was any good. You know, the Bible says there's no one who's good, no one who's righteousness. In my flesh is no good thing. Now, that might be perceived as a negative message, but it ceases to be negative when it puts the finger on the problem that we have and the problem, of course, that we're separated from God. So that's not a negative message. That's a, okay, here's the truth. And we have to be brutally true. Here's the truth. We're doomed. We're going to hell. Why are we going to hell? Because we violated the law of God. We lie. We steal. We cheat. We compromise. We have sex with people who we're not married to. We drink too much. We do drugs. Those are all sins that separate us forever from God. It's only negative if you want to keep sinning. So Lawrence, the reason we deserve hell is because we're sinners who sin willfully against God. Now here's the good news, the positive news. Grace, which is defined as God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. Grace covers our sin. Grace closes the gap between me and God. Now, Lawrence, you are probably a nicer person than I am. But I found when I needed Jesus, it was because I I discovered that my heart was black. And I cried out for Jesus, and grace met me that day. And my life changed forever. So think about how much it says of God's love for you. And someone like me says, you deserve hell, but God wants you to go to heaven. We might say, well, why would he want me to go to heaven if I deserve hell? It's because he doesn't want you to spend eternity there. He would rather spend eternity with you. And the only way you can do that is by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. If we'll do that, Lawrence, we're going to find this is the most positive news at all. We deal with the reality. The reality is very simple. I'm a sinner. I hated God before I got saved. And he loved me so much that when I was desperate enough to turn to him, he was right there. So, Lawrence, I hope that explains. Let's go now to San Marcos and talk with our friend Jim on line one. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Ron, I'm I'm hands-free, and I just pulled out <laughs> into a rainstorm. So I, I think you can hear me. I hope you can hear me. I'm hands-free. I can hear I'm you. Okay. Okay. Good. I'm going to try to pull over. I have a uh, – it's the same topic um, as I always call about. Um, you're sitting in a church, and the pastor just knocks it out of the park with a great message on the money. And then he appears to drive it in the ditch toward the end when he says, well, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus, let's settle this right now for eternity. You come forward, and we'll lead you in the sinner's prayer. And we will, this will settle it for eternity. And I heard it again this past weekend in so many words. And I just cringed because it's more than just saying the prayer. So... Can you explain that to us, why that happens so often still? Yeah, I, I can, Jim. And I think I think sometimes we have to be uh, really, um, we have to give the benefit of the doubt. You know, the pastor has probably explained in the course of his message, in the body of his message, 
about what really coming to Jesus is. When we give an invitation at the end of a message, uh, I want to be very specific about this is what it means to be born again. Um, This is what it means to give your life to Jesus. Um, It's not walking up this aisle that saves you, but it's walking up this aisle and meeting Jesus here and surrendering your life to him. And unfortunately, there's a lot of pastors who aren't quite that direct. And and you your point is a, a valid one. There's a lot of people who will say, yeah, I answered an altar call. I'm saved. And yet they've never lived their life one minute for Jesus. So the idea here that we need to communicate is what does it mean to settle that account for eternity? Um, I go into uh, some detail. We, we've always got time constraints um, about publicly professing Jesus Christ. That's what the altar call is for. Uh, and I will also say, look, you can come and you can ensure your place in heaven. Um, but you have to believe in Jesus, not just know about him, but believe in him. And believing in him means that you're going to live your life for him forever. Jim, you've heard me say this on this program, but I'm convinced half or more than half of the people that sit in Christian churches and go faithfully every week aren't really born-again Christians. They, 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 they come, they're good people, uh, we hang out with them and they're great, but the, the problem is they're still living their life the same as before they claim to have met Jesus. And I tell people here at our church all the time, You cannot meet my Jesus and not be changed forever. So to meet Jesus means that you're coming to him on his terms. And when you do that, you let him take over your heart, then necessarily you're going to have to change. We also, Jim, have to understand that people change at different rates. Uh, I tell our church all the time that God wants you to change quickly. He'll He'll change you as quickly as you let him. But some people hold on to things longer. Some people uh, don't have sort of the insight spiritually that others do. And and they'll try to live with one foot in and one foot out. Uh, Our job as pastors is simply to declare the message. So I can say, I tell our church, I have the authority today to forgive you of all of your sins. Not in a priestly way. I can absolve you. Not that. But I can declare that if you surrender your heart to Jesus, if you are genuine and coming here to meet him, and you are repenting of your sin, that's necessary, and then you ask Jesus into your heart, then eternity is settled. I want people, God wants people to have that security. So I think we have to sort of always take the context of the message. Uh, We're trying to um, provide uh, an invitation so that people can deal with God. Uh, But the Holy Spirit, Jim, is perfectly capable of finishing the work if we don't seal the deal properly. So I hope that makes sense to you. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Be careful out there. There are severe thunderstorms in our area. So be very, very careful. You might even want to come to church. 7 o'clock, Hebrews chapter 7 tonight. I'll see you Monday, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. 
The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. The Word to Stand On.